0: Welcome to the Parenting in the Digital Age podcast. Many parents are concerned that their child might be falling behind. Others are just looking for ways to help their children thrive, not just in the classroom, but socially and well into their future careers. Each episode, we explore the challenges facing parents in the modern world, from behavior, education, and nutrition, to device and gaming addiction. We interview a range of leaders in the area of childhood development to help you succeed Successfully navigate parenting in the digital age.
1: Here is your host, Jamie Buttigieg. Hello, parents, and welcome to Parenting in the Digital Age, the podcast that explores the unique challenges and opportunities of raising children in today's tech driven world. In each episode, we dive into insightful conversations with experts and thought leaders to provide practical guidance for navigating the digital landscape and life as parents. In today's episode, we have a remarkable guest joining us, Tiffany Rochester. Tiffany is a co-parenting coach and clinical psychologist who is passionately dedicated to nurturing families and providing support to parents, ensuring that children can thrive in warm relationships with both parents, even across two separate homes. Drawing from two decades of experience and expertise in working with complex families, Tiffany combines the science of human behavior with the power of compassion to offer relief and open new opportunities for separated families. In short, if you want to level up your co-parenting skills and raise happy, confident kids, Tiffany is here to show you how. Good morning, Tiffany. Welcome to the show. Uh, look, let's just start. Tell us about yourself and uh, your journey and tell us what's a what a co-parenting coach is.
2: Jamie, thank you so much for having me here. I'm really glad to be here. Um, so my journey is uh, over the past. 20 years I've always worked with families who are navigating really tricky circumstances and I started out working with families with repeat juvenile offenders and that uh, taught me a lot about systems and context because what I saw was parents who were working so hard to care for their children and support the growth and development of their children but in a context where they faced judgment at every turn and were dramatically under-resourced. And that set me up for the type of work that I have loved doing ever since then. So I've always worked with families and then around 10 years ago, that transitioned into supporting families that were involved with family court. Those families would come to me through a pathway where a magistrate had determined that there was really nothing left that they knew what to do with the family. So they thought that'd be a really good time to send in a therapist and uh, and it was topsy-turvy work, because by the time they were coming to me, they were being told that they had to be there. Uh, they didn't have much choice in who they came to see, their goals were set by somebody else. There was nothing about that system that was setting those families up for success. And by the time they were there, they had usually already spent somewhere between sixty to $150,000 just in legal fees. And as I looked at it it was it was exhausting work because uh it is work with people who are hurting and exhausted and who again have been judged at every turn and had to justify their parenting and how they move about in the world and I thought I need to do something different. these families need help earlier it is ridiculous that it is not in the same way that we will do antenatal classes to prepare for birth we might do parenting classes when we have a toddler and and we perhaps should continue to do them as our children go through childhood. Co-parents need resources there's not good modeling around how to separate well and maintain a healthy co-parenting dynamic as you raise uh, children in one family across two homes and so I founded Co-Parenting Companion and that's where I am today.
1: That's uh, amazing, and uh, so so tell us a little bit about the the day-to-day. Like, what does a co-parenting coach look like? Like, if I were in a separated, uh, you know, relationship, and uh, I wanted to get help or guidance or tools, you know, how do we engage with you? But also, what does that look like for me?
2: Yeah, really good question and a lot of it would depend on the co-parent that you were uh, stepping into that relationship with. So sometimes there are uh, two people who have realised that their relationship needs to end and are uh, stepping through how to tell the children and how to get through that that first month and then those first six months and move through their first co-parenting plan. and. In those circumstances then I can work with both of those people together to look at where are their shared goals, their shared values, their shared vision for the legacy they want to create for their children, the memories they want for the children to have of this really difficult time in their lives. There's um, beautiful research that shows that families that share stories and narratives about the times that were hard and how they came together to survive and thrive in that helps build the resilience of children. So uh, being able to Set that up right from the start to look at in amongst all of the the grief, the hurt, the anger and the pain in a relationship that needs to end, how to transition that together into the new dynamic of co-parenting, looking at what boundaries shift, what roles and responsibilities change, and what a facilitated relationship looks like. And for those parents, it can often be so difficult. My experience is they are desperately wanting to do the right thing by their children, but they might not know developmentally what that is, we're we're, we're not supposed to all be experts in childhood development and milestones, knowing what the share of time should be for a particular child, a particular stage, with a particular personality is all really, really tricky. So having a neutral person who does have expertise in child development and um, and raising thriving, healthy children can be so useful to know that you're making decisions that truly are in the best interest of the children, even while there's pain on the heart. The other area where a co-parenting coach can be really useful is if you are very, very keen to have a facilitative low conflict co-parenting relationship that protects the outcomes for your children and your co-parent is not necessarily on the same page, because in that dynamic you still have that co-parent, they are still responsible often for 50% of the DNA of your children and you're in a lifelong connection with them because as we know, parenting doesn't stop when the children turn 18 and there are so many, so many transitions and events to navigate together. In that situation, we can look at how do you co-parent well with the co-parent you have, rather than the one that you wish you did. How to care for uh, your own emotional experiences and the painful thoughts and feelings that are triggered in those interactions. How to bring your best self to that communication to uh, de-escalate situations, help hostility stay low, help your co-parent come on board with yeses when they're in the best interest of the children. So regardless of the co-parent you have, there is so much that is available to take the stress and pressure off stepping through that space.
1: Yeah, that's powerful and it's so much more than just a referee like there are so many tools that we don't have as humans to navigate those complex relationships, particularly when it's dissolving and uh, trying to keep the kids front and centre. Uh, I myself went through a similar thing some I'm going to say about 13 years ago if my memory serves me correctly and I think we've uh, done a pretty good job. The My co-parent and I uh, to raise kids. And I'm not saying there haven't been challenges, but in my experience, the three areas that, that we face in was communication. Um, the second was uh, consistency between homes, so in rules and values. And the third one was navigating major decisions. So which school should this child go to or, you know, uh, whatever, it is, what therapist should this child go to, you know, those sorts of things. So, uh, they're, they're always the most challenging times in that co-parenting relationship. So. From your point of view, uh, apart from those or, or including those, what are, the, what are the most common challenges you see with parents navigating co-parenting?
2: Look, you absolutely tapped on the three of them and chief chief among them is the communication skills that, um... And we know that the very most protective thing that we can do for children uh, in intact families and in separated families is shield them from that conflict. So looking at how to communicate well together, even when matters are contentious. Is so important, and I think if we look at all the narratives of every movie, every sitcom, every drama ever made, uh, I sit there and I go, my gosh, all of this could have been solved if these people just had some communication skills. So, uh, so this issue isn't only unique to um, to co parents, um, and it's interesting that the the point you raised about the big decisions, I think, is also is such a stressful moment and. Often, what I see is parents agonising over something that isn't as as big a deal as their heart and their mind worries about. Um, and, and I think schools is such a really good example of that, or, or, or the other example you gave, choosing a, a therapist, uh, because uh, generally there are lots and lots of great schools, and and, and few that are dreadful. And um, and, and through parents being able to really listen to the shared values in that space and the outcomes that they're wanting for their children, they'll be able to find the common ground to be able to look at the best uh, geographical location, private versus public, uh, the the right kind of setup for the child that they have. I I, I do highly recommend school tours. I'm not saying all all schools are right for all children, uh, but there are, are ways of finding that common ground through tuning in and listening to each other to be able to take the heat out of those major decisions.
1: Yeah, so uh, here's an interesting one. So what are some of the key indicators that a child might be adjusting well to co-parenting or uh, some signs that they may be struggling? Like, you know, what if if this is, if I was someone that was new to co-parenting, a fairly recent separation, uh, what should I be looking for? What are those signs to, to see that my kids, maybe I know it's a two part question, but maybe start with some of the, the negative signs that maybe they're not coping well. What what are some of those things I should be looking for?
2: That is such an excellent question. So the, the first thing that I would say is that in the first two years after separation, everything goes a little bit haywire for the whole family system. So. Parenting is not at its best because parents are trying to figure out how to separate across two homes, mend their hearts, care for their children, learn a whole new dance interaction. So they're not at their parenting best and children are going through a major transition that developmentally they're they're not ready for until they're maybe in their 20s. So the first thing that I would say is that a lot of the behaviours that you might see in those first couple of years are probably, excuse me, probably normal and so if your children are angry screaming crying um, those those aren't signs that they're not okay they're signs that they are processing through what is happening for them and the only job that a parent needs to be concerned with at that moment is being to borrow from circular security that 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 big enough strong enough wise enough kind enough presence to be the container for those feelings to know that they don't have to fix them or solve them they don't have to make those feelings go away they just have to be able to sit there with their child and go i get that this sucks i get that this is awful i think sometimes parents can we we don't want our children to hurt right I've got a couple of kids there's nothing that hurts my heart more than seeing my children in pain and it's so important as parents that we don't try and rescue rescue them and jolly them out of it so sometimes I'll hear parents say things like do you know but it's going to be fine because you get two lots of presents and you get two lots of holidays and we don't have to make it be okay that it will be okay it will be it will be okay but we don't need to polish it for them. It's, it's sufficient to just sit there and be the space that says, I know my darling, this isn't what you chose. And I know that you're hurting and I know that it's hard. So in terms of, the first thing I'll say is your children are probably fine. And in fact, 79% of kids go on to be quite fine um, and grow up uh, indistinguishable from children who grow up in healthy intact families. Signs that your child might be heading towards that, uh, that, that other bucket uh, and, and in there we'll see problems with um, academic development, social connections, um, emotional coping. The types of things that we will often see is withdrawal. So it can be very destabilizing for a child and this is where the shielding from conflict is so important, where they, they see the conflict between two parents it disrupts their trust in adults, and it disrupts their their capacity to seek help from grown-ups. Um, So we might see withdrawal more more going to their room or listening to music. I mean, music is great (laughs) as part of a strategy, but uh, we also want to see them still going out with their friends or or asking for playdates when they're younger. So the social withdrawal and no longer seeking help from others would be a sign that things aren't okay for them. Um, if there is a, a drop in their academic performance, that would be something that I'd be, uh, you know, just wanting to be curious about. And um, and I think kind of with, with two hands, one is to be having conversations with the, the teacher to just kind of track how the kid is doing. But the other is to remember that a, a semester in the life of a childhood education, unless we're looking at year 12, is probably not that big a deal. And so you can track it over time and allow them a chance to to grieve, prioritize their emotional care and well-being whilst they make their way through this pathway. Acting out behaviors is the other thing that you are likely to see, so an increase in aggression that is particularly, particularly more likely for boys in the first two years. What we often see, um, and in fact what Richard shows us, is that When we have children who become more withdrawn and show internalised behaviours, so if we see uh, self harm emerging, which obviously would be a a key risk issue, um, those children are often being exposed to covert conflict between the parents. So that might be uh, where parents are not able to shield the children from their own resentment, their own grief. If if the child has been made to be the messenger between two homes, if the um, if the child is uh, feeling responsible for the well-being of one or both parents. So that's where we'll see those internalizing behaviors and if we're seeing externalizing behaviors that the shouting, acting out, um, bullying, aggression, then those children are usually being exposed to more overt hostilities. They're the ones that are more likely to hear parents actively speaking ill of their co-parent um, or, or, or shouting um, and, and speaking derogatory ways to them and about them um and if not their co-parent the the other the other system part of the system that we really need to be paying attention to is what the friends and family around the parents are doing because often the poor the poor parents who already have so much that they are dealing with um, in trying to care for their children and connect with each other often have exceedingly well-meaning friends and family who do things that are inadvertently very unhelpful and that may include speaking ill of the co-parent or um, not facilitating um, being supportive of the child's right to a relationship with the other side of the family.
1: Yeah, that's, and that's an interesting point you make there is that we always started out with this intention to never to throw each other under the bus, at least not with our kids around. And uh, and that was partly because we, you know, we, we started with the intent of let, let's raise good humans. Uh, we mm. we don't have to let this moment or this failure if you want to call it a failure define our kids or, or leave such a terrible mark on our kids and uh kids are looking kids are watching i, I don't care what age they are but they they're modeling our behavior and you know you have to ask yourself the question do you want kids that undermine other people or act unethically or you know throw throw people under the bus in the workplace you know that's not the behavior I want my kids to develop into You know, the other side of this, like when you look at some of those behaviors that you were just speaking about, that does have to drive some guilt, like as parents, and I know I certainly felt guilt, you know, in those early stages. And, um, you know, that that can manifest in other ways, like, you know, maybe friend parenting or maybe, uh, like, like, I don't know, like, you know this stuff better than I do. Like, I, I see some train wrecks out there where, and the main example that I see is where, uh, a parent is is guilty, obviously carrying guilt, whether they choose to to admit that or not, and then literally having zero discipline and boundaries in the house, right? Now, do, is that something you see? Is that something that is it a common mistake or a trap? That if I'm feeling guilt, I kind of am more uh, likely to be lenient on my kids and let them get away with things that perhaps I might not have otherwise let them do before.
2: That's a really interesting line to draw, and and you could be right in some circumstances, I, and I think I. I think you may see both you would definitely see both but whether or not that it's a a, you know relationship between the two maybe for some people Um, there's kind of several points in there that I'd I'd really love to catch and speak to Um, in terms of the guilt I think there's a difference between guilt and shame and shame um, shame causes us to draw away and to hide. We are, we are not good with coping with shame. And so I think we're far more likely to see problematic behaviors in the parenting emerge if a parent is experiencing shame over what has happened. Guilt tends to be more of a motivator. We, we want to make things better when there's guilt. Um, but we might not know the most effective ways to make things better. And so yes, you you may see somebody wanting to make things better by uh, being the Disneyland parent or by being the parent who has uh, relaxed boundaries. Uh, People often have a kind of a faulty rule that holding a boundary somehow is unkind and yet our our children thrive most when we have um, firm boundaries held with kindness and love. That's what children need for security. On the guilt point, you raised a really interesting word, and you talked about the word failure, you know, that there was a failure. And and I conceptualise it so differently, because you also tied that together with, with what you're modelling for the children. And it is, you know, when the divorce and separation rates are as high as they are, we know that Sometimes relationships need to end. The, the versions of ourselves that choose our partners don't always know what's what's coming. I've, I've seen so many relationships that have ended because grenades were thrown at them that they just were not resourced to be able to get through as a team. Or there was a slow trickle down um, in a communication breakdown that actually started back in the learnings that they had when they were children growing up. Relationships end for really good reasons and i don't think i don't think that's a failure i think i think it takes incredible courage to step away from unhealthy relationship and to choose raising children across two homes is is leveling up your co-parenting game It's, it's not an easy decision it's on on any level it takes incredible courage and then in terms of the modeling for the children Staying in an unhealthy dynamic, staying in a toxic dynamic that has no hope of recovery, that is that is risky for children. And and it's risky not just in terms of what the children are exposed to in that moment, but also in terms of what you're modeling about what romantic attachments look like, about what you might want your own children to have as they move into their adult lives. So then coming back to when the guilt shows up, I, I think we're... Where we really have to care for parents in that early stage of separation is helping them create space to actually acknowledge those feelings, to not be suppressing them in the, in the hope to, 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 to run away and, and, and move on and make everything happy and healthy again. Our emotions show up for such healthy, good reasons. They give us such useful information. And uh, unfortunately in our society, there's not a lot taught around how to uh, make room for your emotions. <laughs> Distress tolerance isn't high. We have to care for our hearts and learn how to have our painful emotions in order that we are not driven by them, in order that we can find our wiser self to make decisions for our behaviours around our children that line up with our values and aren't determined by the feelings that are running around in our bodies.
1: Yeah, yeah. Okay, so this might be an interesting segue. You talked about new relationships and those sorts of things. how how can somebody introduce a new partner into this dynamic of co-parenting? So whether it's, you know, a year after or 10 years after it's, it's always an interesting or sometimes a challenging conversation to have with your kids. You know, this is mummy's new friend or daddy's new friend. Like what advice do you have for people who are, are facing those challenges?
2: Yes. Wow. So that is such a big, big question. Uh, so, Bringing in a new person is is definitely um, a big deal, and what I would say to all parents navigating this part of their journey is that the new the new relationship stepping in may be your greatest ally in the system. It might be the the, the, the greatest opportunity to to bring um, even more stability that there 's no limit to how many um, adults can can love a child and how uh, well a child can thrive in an ever expanding family. What I would say is with respect for your co-parent, in honoring the role that they have in the life of your child, if your relationship is at a point where it is serious and you can see this going forward for a long time and you're ready to introduce the children, tell your co-parent first, let them know that it's coming. And there's many reasons for that. And one is because, even a healthy co-parenting dynamic can often be destabilized by a, a new person coming into the mix. It can raise lots of feelings about what if this, you know, what if this person is liked more than me? What if I'm replaced? That, that won't happen. Like like we, we know, you know, at our most intelligent souls, that won't happen. But those fears, they, they, they arise and they start driving behavior. So. Letting your co-parent know first gives them time to handle those emotions on their own and seek resourcing that they may need to deal with that so that they are not hit with all of those emotions because their child tells them. You don't want them having that moment with the child. The other thing that it allows is that then when the children come to talk to the other parent about this new person, that the parent is in a space where they're able to be supportive, able to be facilitated, able to say, like, yeah, I'm so excited. I heard that there was this person in the mix, and like, I'm really thrilled that you get to meet them. And so the parent is then in a space where they've been able to handle their feelings, deal with their complicating stuff that might come up for them in order that they can then make it safe for their child to be able to form a new connection with this person. The other thing that I would say is that it is so important for the, uh, for the person coming into the dynamic and the other parent to meet each other and to be able to sit down and have a, a neutral coffee or a neutral Zoom to just get a sense of who each other is. We're a lot less scary face-to-face and we are really good at creating demons and monsters. Uh, um, and when we sit down face-to-face like, oh no, no, you seem like a really reasonable person. In in, an, in other circumstances, we might have been friends. And that can just set so many tensions aside and make it a much, much smoother pathway.
1: It's interesting, and, and you said something there about uh, kind of like edifying that other person or, or saying to your child, hey, this is exciting, uh, you know, that dad's got a new friend or whatever that is, and and, ma- and not making it a destructive time because not only does that impact on, your co-parents' new relationship, but it impacts on, you know, just messes up the kids. Probably the wrong word for this conversation, but it does, it does have an impact, you know. Because if I'm a kid, I have to go to dad's house now, and dad's got a new friend, but mum doesn't like this new friend, mm-hmm. uh, or has made that clear. There's kids would experience. I'm going to use the word guilt, and that may not be the right word, but like guilt in going to daddy's and associating with this new friend. So I'm pushing this new partner away as a child, but not mm-hmm. quite understanding the whole you know, complicated things. So I think it is important for those new partners to speak well, not just of their co-parent, but speak well of this new partner. Um, Anyway, I just thought that was a fascinating way. Like I'd never thought of it in that context.
2: You're absolutely right, though. Children feel a loyalty bind, and um, and that can happen no matter how hard the parents are working. So, so constantly giving that message that it is okay to love us both, it's okay to want to go to to dad and miss mum, or, or or vice versa. This is healthy and normal. Uh, and within that, the other part that I would say is, if you were the new person coming into this dynamic, if if and particularly by the time that you're looking at uh, perhaps cohabiting together get yourself along to a blended family um, parenting course. There's plenty of inexpensive ones that run through places like Relationships Australia. Step parenting is an incredibly important role and knowing how to, how to take on the step parent role rather than a pseudo parent role is incredibly important for stabilizing the whole dynamic.
1: This, like, I'm loving this conversation. Each of these questions could be a podcast in its own <laughs> right. So, like, uh, I appreciate you, you know, summarising and, and giving us some valuable information here. Um, and we, we might even have to have a follow-up podcast because I've got I've got a list of questions that we are not even going to touch on today. But uh, here's an interesting one. And, and something I guess I struggle with a little bit is how, how can parents maintain consistency in rules and expectations across two separate homes? What tips do you have there? You know particularly i mean even though some parents may be you know quite well good you know they might be good at communicating um, they've still got two different standards mm-hmm. how, how do we navigate that
2: so the first thing that i would say is care less um, care less about what is happening in the other home and the reason that i would say that is again when we look at what is protected for children we know that one authoritative nurturing relationship with uh, those those kind boundaries um, held with love is enough to protect the outcomes of children and children learn in their context so they can that they can learn that you know i always get ice cream when i go to see my grandparents on this side and i always get to jump on the couch when i go and see grandparents over there but at mum's house at dad's house uh you know we Stay at the table until the meal is done. There is no ice cream and we definitely don't jump on the furniture Children can learn different behaviors in different contexts. So I would say It is okay if things are different then the next part that I would put in is It's a great idea to let your co-parent know what your boundaries are to let them know What kind of sleep routines you're working towards what kind of screen boundaries you're holding the reasons why you're choosing those but I would encourage parents to do it from the position of "I'm just letting you know. This is what works well in our home. This is just for your information, and leave it for the other parent to think about, to digest, and to pick it up and run with it, if they choose. If instead we go from the position of "I'm doing this and you need to do it too," we're hitting the we're hitting the rage against the machine button. You know, I'm trying to be mindful of my language, but the you know, if you, I won't do what you tell me. <laughs> and and so we really don't want to hit that button so letting the other parent know this is what I'm doing take it or leave it gives the other parent that chance to just reflect on it and perhaps even come back and say to you I'm really struggling in this area how do you manage that How, how do you resolve this problem so so by by taking the pressure off you invite more opportunities for those that consistency to emerge
1: I guess that the big sub theme uh, under all this is that we we have to change our own mindset and our own way like in the way that we look at situations relationships and, and those personal interactions um, okay let's see what's an interesting question that I have here uh, Okay, so how can co-parents effectively handle disagreements about major life decisions? We talked a little bit about major life decisions earlier, and I know each question can be a podcast here. But give us a tip or two about, you know, let's let's say, well, maybe you give us an example of what you consider to be a major life decision that you know co-parents may uh, be facing, and how they might uh, tip or two on how they might handle that disagreement.
2: I'm just thinking about all the ones that come up. I mean, you raised earlier around choosing a therapist, and I would say that's not a li- a major decision.
1: <laughs> um, but I, sometimes, um, sometimes the parents they are like in choosing a school. Like sometimes the parents, like it's it's the it's the biggest decision in their life yes. all year, and that's a perception yes. thing. Like I get that, and really, yes. you know what? Doesn't matter if it's that school, or this school. They're both going to be great schools. There are caring educators in all of us in the Australian school system. Probably doesn't matter. It more comes down to you know, am I really being stubborn about location, or is this going to be convenient for me to get get to and from work and drop off kids and those sorts of things? Maybe it's more situational. But you know, to, to us, uh, some of these things seem like big life decisions.
2: And that that is the exact point that I think is so important is that what feels enormous to you in that moment may not have all of the repercussions that you imagine that it's going to have. So. I would say before approaching that conversation you really want to be able to be clear in your head about why is this important? What is it that I'm fighting for? And and if it is crucial, if it is something that's really important to fight for, then then, by all means, step forward and and, and hold that position uh, using excellent communication tools about uh, your, your your values in that space. Listening to the other person, um, not not expressing judgment, uh, <laughs> and, and to be able to really share these are the these are the reasons I think this could be a good idea. Um, but. You don't wanna do that for anything else, for all of the other stuff that's that's minor. So I would suggest you know, chatting to a co-parenting coach, or if you are involved with, uh, a, you know, have a therapist supporting you and resourcing you, having a chat with them. If your child does have a therapist, have a chat with them. Talk with your parent network. Find out in your in, in intact families, how are they navigating this? Or is this an issue that is just uh, unique because you are raising kids across two homes? Or is this the kind of issue that, every parent is facing, and how are other parents handling that situation? People have gone ahead of you who perhaps can give you that perspective to go, uh, you know, I, I've got a, a child who is in upper school at the moment. And uh, so we've had to do a, a lot of work around uh, uh, with him about looking at what are the alternative pathways that are going to be available to you through ATAR, because there's still so much messaging around, um, you know, <laughs> it's now or never, and you, and you have to do this right right now. Um, And then I think it really is to step back into the eyes of the child and really looking at can I see what our child needs separate from what I need and so if we're looking at that, that school decision like if parents are living geographically reasonably far apart from each other the answer might not be for the school to be halfway so that each parent gets to do the same amount of travel. Uh, that might seem very fair at the parent level, but it means you, you, you're ruling out for the child the possibility that sometimes they can walk to school and sometimes they can have their network living close to them. And it may be hard for the parent that lives further away to know that that network isn't near them, but it has to be near one of them if, if that's what you're looking for. Uh, so so recognising that the benefit that that is for your child, regardless of which which home that is near. Um, I'm, I'm thinking about the number of situations that come up. And, and I think that those big decisions are so different according to the dynamics of each family. One that I would see that does come up actually is around around concerns about assessment if a child is having academic difficulties if a child may be neurodivergent um, or or have some other complexity going on and we can see parents kind of really wrestling with whether or not it's the right time to to go forward with an assessment or an intervention and there my guidance to parents would be early intervention is key always it is It is always key. And I would far prefer for parents to rock up for a therapy service or an intervention service and have um, a a space where the person can say, look, you're being a bit neurotic and your kid is fine, (laughs) rather than wait and see and leave a child um, unsupported and unresourced. And for the most part, any diagnosis you might be looking at, whether it's um, you know, a learning difficulty, um, a a neurodivergence, a a gender or sexuality issue. All of those are not going to be long-term problems for your child unless they're not identified, not accommodated, not supported. And the professionals that that you involve in the life of your children adhere to code of ethics, have done a massive amount of training, um, do not care to be brought into triangulated conflict between co-parents. So it really doesn't matter who you choose in terms of which co-parent chooses them, so long as that they are the person with the expertise for the answers that you're looking for, for the child that you have in front of you.
1: Oh, it's a wonderful view and, and tremendous tremendous advice. All right, let's let's. Uh, well, there's one more. We've got to wrap this up soon, and uh, I do respect your time and uh, and your generosity on today's show because uh, I've I've certainly got a tremendous amount, and and I know our listeners uh, will too. But what advice do you have for co-parents who are dealing with say a difficult or uncooperative ex-spouse? So maybe in terms of let's say, I think I'm the proactive positive one, and I want to get a co-parenting coach but my co-parent doesn't want a co-parenting coach thinks that we don't need any any support or help and doesn't want to kind of communicate with this third party what advice would you have for for that sort of situation
2: uh, so I would say go it alone. There, there is don't don't wait to empower yourself in that co-parenting dynamic for a tricky co-parent to come on board. There is so much that you can do to take care of you and to improve that co-parenting dynamic by working smarter but never harder. And so. Don't wait. And in fact, if you've got a tricky co-parent who is not interested in uh, coming along with you, all the more reason not to wait because you have a harder job ahead of you. So my goodness me, get some fuel in your tank. And I I think it's so important to look at co-parenting from the inside out that this isn't about. The other person it isn't about uh, whether they're right or wrong whether they're they're good or bad uh, people aren't good or bad They're just you know <laughs> parts of the contact context. It's about What's happening in you? How do you care for yourself in the moments that are tricky? How do you honor all of the parts of your body that are showing up so that you can co-parent with ease and? Thrive in the rest of your life, enjoy your parenting, enjoy taking your kids on holidays rather than spending money on court fees. Enjoy new career opportunities open up, enjoy that new relationship if you choose to re-enter dating. There is so much to be gained in this thriving new life after you've left a relationship that wasn't serving the needs of the two of you.
1: That's tremendous, tremendous advice. One fun question we like to ask all of our guests before we wind up uh, each episode is if we had a time machine and uh, Tiffany could go back to your younger self, uh, maybe 10 or 12 years old, what's one piece of advice that you would give the young Tiffany?
2: I think it is the most beautiful question. and. Uh, You know, 10 to 12 year old Tiffany uh, was in a small country town, having moved from the city. uh, She was fairly uh, lost and uncertain in the social world. And if I could go back to her, I would wrap her up in a big warm hug and say, my darling girl, you're going to be just fine. I'm going to take such good care of us. You have no idea how great it's going to be. Trust me, we've got this
1: wonderful advice i'm going to write a book just with all these pieces of advice one one day uh, <laughs> tiffany um, co-parenting coach thank you so much for your time and generosity today how can people reach out or connect with you or follow your socials give us some give us some of that info
2: Yep, my website is coparentingcompanion.au and you can find me on facebook instagram and linkedin it's just at coparentingcompanion and by all means i'd love to see you um hit me up with a dm send me an email let me know what resourcing and supports you're needing I, this this is everything i live and breathe so i want to serve and resource this community really
1: well and, and that tr- truly comes across thank you so much for a wonderful uh, chat today it's, it's one i've been looking forward to for some time and uh, we weren't disappointed tiffany thank you for your time and i uh, hope we cross paths again soon
2: thanks so much jamie i really appreciate it
0: If you enjoyed the show, please connect with Jamie on LinkedIn or Instagram. You'll find links in the podcast description. Parenting in the Digital Age is sponsored by Skill Samurai, coding and STEM academy for kids. Skill Samurai offers after-school coding classes and holiday programs to help kids thrive academically and socially, while preparing them for the careers of the future. Visit skillsamurai.com.au.